0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. We had some technical issues when Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes was here last week to discuss her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art, and the interview was cut short. So we've asked her to make a return visit so we can give this fascinating subject the full hour it requires and deserves. Her book is published by Bloomsbury Sigma and it is with great pleasure that I welcome archaeologist and science writer Rebecca Reg cites back to our show hi
1: hi there thank you for having me
0: (laughs) Uh, haven't you worked on this book for eight years
1: ah no um I started talking to my publisher um eight years ago but I actually took three years to write this book Uh so it's still long enough
0: (laughs) Are, are we still discovering new things about Neanderthals and how they lived
1: Oh gosh, yes, all the time. Um, yeah, there was a, a new study out just today, in fact, um, sort of bringing together evidence from eleven different sites that might be pointing towards freshwater fish used in Neanderthals. So there you go. <laughs> hmm.
0: The first Neanderthal bones and the top of a skull were found about a century and a half ago in the summer of 1856 in Kleina a German limestone quarry in the Neander Valley. I guess Neander is where Neanderthal comes from. Was it apparent from the start that they were not human remains?
1: Um, <clears throat> Interestingly, there was um, sort of debate over that. I think at the very beginning, um, we actually have an unnamed quarry manager to thank, really, um, for the recognition that... Uh, some of the bones that were being pulled out by the quarry workers from this cave uh, they were actually mining for um, marble and limestone and in the in the caves in this huge um, beautiful gorge near dusseldorf um the caves were full of sticky clay and mixed in with that were um fossils um of animals including bear and they would blast this out uh, with black powder and um, chuck it all down into the bottom of the gorge and um, but it was this guy that realized that these were not bare bones and they were something out of the ordinary and then uh, he sent them to a local uh, teacher who was interested in natural history Um so that person recognized that they did look human and um, and you know there was immediate interest from uh, anatomists but sort of over the next 20 years even, people were still arguing that maybe this was just, you know, a per- a normal person who maybe was a bit ill or had some strange injuries. So, yeah, there was, there was a controversy from the beginning.
0: And that, uh, that quarry has uh, given us more things. In 1997, some fragments of bones were found there, and then in 2000, uh, there are thousands of artifacts. So that has been a valuable source. Uh, but according to the Natural History Museum in London, the earliest known Neanderthal-like fossils date back 430,000 years, and billions of Neanderthals roamed the globe during their time on Earth. Yet, the remains of only 300 of them have been studied?
1: Um, yeah, um, the, the 430,000 years ago is uh, when we can kind of recognize them as a distinct genetic population. So those samples come from a site in Spain, uh, called the um, Cueva de los Huesos, which means the pit of bones, um, and that's a many individuals who are kind of proto-Neanderthals, and really by about 350,000 years ago, um, they have emerged fully as, you know, recognisable Neanderthals in fossil terms, but um, yeah, I mean, sure, if you look at the whole span of time they existed, between 350 right through to only 40,000 years ago, um yeah there were tens and tens and tens of thousands millions of them walking around um but yeah i mean the 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 fossil record we have doesn't sound like very many um when you say it only represents about three, 2 300 individuals but we actually do have thousands of individual fossils and uh, you know body parts um, sometimes they're quite complete skeletons um other times you might have a jaw and that's just that's one individual um, but really, you know, considering how remarkably old that is, um, it's a really decent fossil record.
0: Now, how does that timeline compare to uh, the uh, to modern humans? Did uh, did we develop around the same time?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Our timeline has kind of shifted backwards as well in recent years. So we now um, believe, based on uh, genetic evidence, that our last Common ancestor we shared with Neanderthals was probably somewhere around 650,000 years ago. Wow. Um, and then our and their lineages branched off, um, and, and just like the Neanderthals, we become visible in fossils. So, anatomically, you can see in different populations in Africa um, the, the classic Homo sapiens features begin emerging around 350,000 years ago. So we kind of have a parallel evolution, really, with Neanderthals.
0: And weren't there nine different hominid uh, groups that developed uh, uh, over the years, uh, now only modern humans?
1: Yeah, that's one of the the big sort of shifts over the past century, really, in our understanding of human evolution on a large scale. If you go back three million years, um, there's tons and tons of different Um, sort of uh, recognisable, we call them the Australopithecines, Um, Mm. so they are um, uh, sort of more like uh, primitive, um, and then as time goes by, um, certainly within the last 500,000 years, um, there are many, many other kinds of hominins, Um, and yes, that petered down And after probably after 30,000 years ago, um, it's just us. But when the Neanderthals were around, um, there's Neanderthals. We know about the Denisovans, who were an Eastern Asian um, Mm. species very closely related to Neanderthals. Um, Also, we have um, one called Homo luzonensis, which has just been recently um, identified from the Philippines. We have probably multiple groups in um, Africa, um, there's the early Homo sapiens. There's probably late surviving, more primitive forms in Africa, just as there were in uh, in the East Asia. Um, and then even more recently, um, there was a discovery of from South Africa another uh, species called Homo naledi from this really cool um, cave, the Rising Star Cave. And they are weird because they look very primitive, but they were still around um, apparently, um, you know, not much more than two hundred thousand years ago.
0: Now, originally, uh, Neanderthals were thought to have been uh, lived in Europe, but now believed to be primarily Eurasian. Uh, You write that Neanderthals lived, quote, from North Wales across to the borders of China and southwards to the fringes of Arabia's desert. So they thrived in hot climates as well as in Ice Age tundra. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I'm in Wales right now. That's where I live, and there is a Neanderthal site here quite an early one. It's about 270,000 years ago, mostly teeth. Um, But yeah, through that whole time period um, between three hundred and fifty to 40,000 years ago, you're looking at multiple cycles of climate change. So there wasn't one sort of just one long, cold period. Um, It went from, yeah, very cold periods that we call glacial periods, um, right through to interglacials, and we are in an interglacial right now, so it's warmer, we don't have the polar ice caps have not extended right down. Um, and Neanderthals sort of coped with all of this. We, we think now that they didn't really like it super cold, and they actually are much more comfortable in sort of warmer environments. Um, for example, even during the colder periods, they always were around the Mediterranean in sort of woodland that kind of environment with red deer hmm. and things like that.
0: And how did they protect themselves? Did they cover themselves with animal skins?
1: Um, we can certainly see um, from different sort of forms of evidence that they were they were using their tools to work animal skins to to for hide making. Essentially, um, we can see that from traces on stone tools. And we've also uh, now found um, bone tools, which which are virtually identical to the bone uh, tools called Lissoir, which is still used in a uh, leather making industry. That's for like the final stage of softening and burnishing the leather to make it waterproof. Um, so they were doing something with animal skins an awful lot, and um, we can even see that they are from the different polishes on their stone tools that they were, you know, cleaning cleaning all the fat off and the fresh skins, but there's also some where we can see that they are softening already dried out skins. So it's you know it's quite a complicated process. Um, there are hints that um, there may have been some fires where they're intentionally burning like really rotten wood, which you do to smoke your hides. Um, and also there is a site in Germany where there's a tiny little preserved sort of organic scrap on a stone tool. And it's completely imbued with oak tannins. And, you know, if you know about leather making, you need tannins for, for making leather. And, and oak is fantastic for that. So that might be part of it. Um, so that's but pretty sophisticated. Wearing clothes, Yeah, it could be clothing. Um, it would make sense, certainly, thermal modelling, like, you know, modelling on bodies' heat loss and accounting for the, the different shape of Neanderthal bodies still implies that, colder periods, they definitely would have needed some decent body covering, you know, more than just like a random skin flapping around. There had to be some kind of tailoring around their limbs, some kind of head covering. So that's likely, but maybe also shelters.
0: Now, isn't there evidence that Neanderthals survived periods of serious climate change? Where did they live? Did they live mostly in caves?
1: We think it's probably a mix. We certainly find a lot of our evidence in caves, but that's largely to do with the likelihood of um, stuff basically just surviving in caves because it's a protected environment. And that's especially important when you're talking about cold glacial periods when, you know, ice might be coming down as far as um, sort of nearly London and northern Germany. That can sort of scrape away evidence. And you can get floods and things like this. So the material in caves will survive. Um, But we do know from um, finds across the landscape, including one really cool site from France, where there does appear to be a circle of um, small post holes, about 10 meters across, um, Hmm. which is believed to be um, an open-air shelter.
0: Now, the specimens we've found range from newborns to adults in their 50s and even 60s uh many just a single bone or or jaw fragment but how much do we know about their body types uh should i assume that uh the the uh, stereotype of the short very muscled uh beings with with uh, brow ridges, ridges, prominent noses uh, a bun in the back uh is is an accurate one
1: yeah, overall, that is accurate. Um, uh, all the way through um, time, Neanderthals did sort of change a little bit, but they did retain these really distinctive features. So they were shorter, they were stockier, the bones are thicker, and that may be partly to do with very intensive lifestyle, uh, oh. so thicker bones. But um, but yeah, the skull shape is um, the same. Um, it's sort of uh, flatter, but there is differences in terms of the regions where they lived as well. So Neanderthals from um, the Near East region um, are a bit more lightly built um, than the ones living up in Northern Europe, which makes sense from sort of a climate perspective.
0: And weren't even the, the arms of the males different than the ones from the females? The, the totally arms of the males, males were asymmetric the while the, the lower arms of, of the females were well developed. Do yeah, we know why? Yeah, that
1: to do with how, they, how they're living, yeah. Um, what we believe is that, um, in general, um, <clears throat> all Neanderthals, even children, were immensely active, hugely physically active. Um, and so they all developed very you know, big muscles, and, and they were very fit. Um, but it does seem, although the sample size is quite small for identifiable female Neanderthals, it does look as if, overall, there are differences in the ways they're using their bodies. Um, so there are differences in uh, in the legs uh, amongst males and females, and it looks perhaps as if the males are maybe traversing rougher terrain more often, um, and uh, the females um, have less asymmetric arm development, which implies that they are using both of their arms more often for really demanding physical tasks, whereas males it's it's um it's more sort of balanced towards their right arm because they are they are handed just like we are most Neanderthals are right-handed. So there is an interesting difference there in terms of the way that they're living, which is impacting their bodies. Um, And we can see that in the teeth as well. There's hints from wear on their teeth that there is a difference between the sexes.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Rebecca Rag Sykes. Her book, *Kindred Neanderthal: Kindred Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art*, published by Bloomsbury Sigma. The uh, you you say that uh, that right from the start. I'm quoting that Neanderthals were embedded in scientific justifications for white supremacy. Yeah, <laughs> the, the
1: Victorians. Um, Overall, we're very keen on ranking living people um, by superiority in physique, in cognition, and in culture. And so, when they first found um, in 1856, first recognised another kind of ancient human relative, that was immediately sort of slotted in to their system of trying of understanding, you know, the peoples of the world. Um, and they were used quite explicitly as um, comparisons with hunting and gathering peoples, and so that that includes Aboriginal Australians who were regarded as um, as literally savage, you know, closer to hmm. animals because of how they lived, which clearly is absolutely obscene to us today. Um, and and the Neanderthals were brought into these arguments, and they were part of. Um, a development where it was actually argued, um, even into the 20th century, um, mid-20th century, that some branches of living people, basically the non-white ones, were literally less evolved and had sort of branched off earlier and stopped evolving.
0: And uh, as you point out, the scientific consensus claimed until recently that Neanderthals compared to early Homo sapiens tended to remain locally near their hearth and home sites, eking out a living and uh, and were incapable of much creativity beyond basic survival, while you describe them as advanced beings with keen hunting skills, sophisticated social relationships, and technological advances like tool making.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, although I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners probably have kind of seen a lot of headlines here and there saying, oh, Neanderthals could do this. Neanderthals weren't as stupid as we used to think. But really the totality of um, the archaeological evidence that specialists know about but that doesn't really get out there is massive. And it's that whole picture that I've tried to bring together and sort of present to people um, and, and sort of let them share what we can see in you know, in the detailed analysis, for example, of the placement of hearths, and and um, you know, even being able to look into the the micro layers within a hearth and see how many times it was lit, and that they were cleaning the hearth ash out just like you do in the stove, you know. Um, so yeah, the 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 shift in what we know has been happening the past thirty years, but really it's just not sort of been communicated um, outside the odd big headline to people. So that's what I wanted to do.
0: And the review on the New York Times Book Review wrote that your book is important reading, not just for anyone interested in these ancient cousins of ours, but also anyone interested in humanity. Why is it important yeah, for mean, us to understand Neanderthals? Well, because
1: um, we've used Neanderthals since the beginning as a mirror for Looking back at ourselves, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, they were roped into all these white supremacist and colonial ideas. Um, but also we have consistently looked at them and seen that they are extinct, although we now know genetically they're not. They, they carry on in us. But, um, but you know, they're not around anymore walking around. And so that fact has been used as a means by which to argue that we're better in a, in many, many ways. Um, And yet we're also scared in some ways of the fact that Neanderthals are extinct. So there are these competing sort of ideas about why they're important. But I, you know, so many books about Neanderthals focus on the whole extinction thing. And I wanted to write a book that was actually about the Neanderthals themselves for their own sake, because they're so interesting by themselves as kindred, as another kind of human.
0: But isn't it also likely that many of us carry some neanderthal genes uh i just read about a a recent study uh in in the uk that suggests that a neanderthal gene variant found in some humans acts as a pain volume knob that decides how many painful signals are sent to the spinal cord and brain yeah and that that
1: particular study um is sort of at the cell level, really, and in terms of um, the study, they haven't actually stuck it in people or anything, no. um, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, um, in terms of sort of the, um, the closeness to us and um, sort of the, the relationship, um, how Neanderthals might, how their genes relate to us is one of the biggest areas because it was only a decade ago that we actually had the first nuclear Genome from Neanderthals. Before that, it was another kind of DNA that's only handed down from mothers, and, and it, it didn't reflect any interbreeding. But when we got the nuclear genome, it was clear that there had been interbreeding, and that the legacy of that, although it's only somewhere between about one and a half to two point four percent in um, non Sub-Saharan African people, so people with uh, with without that background, in overall that you know that's still quite a lot. Of Neanderthal genetic material are walking around the world today. Um, and things have got even more complicated um, and more interesting because that period of interbreeding um, that left the, the trace in us today, um, that took place about 55,000 years ago, we believe. But we know that there was, there was interbreeding later with other early Homo sapiens who didn't leave um, descendants, really in living people, and there were other phases before that, going back probably before 200,000 years ago. Um, and this is because we've now also seen, in terms of the archaeology, that early Homo sapiens people, although we evolved in Africa, we were leaving and we were dispersing from that continent. Parts of those populations were beginning to disperse um, much earlier than we used to think. So early Homo sapiens populations are in Australia by 65,000 hmm. years ago already.
0: And have, uh, having some uh, Neanderthal genes turned up in people in Africa because there was a movement back and forth?
1: Yeah, this was a recent find. It's a very, very tiny, tiny amount um, in these um, populations uh, from sub-Saharan Africa who hadn't been believed to have Um, any Neanderthal material. And it may be that that is reflecting movements of Eurasians um, or interactions with Eurasians um, much later um, with African populations. So they kind of received that heritage um, from a different route, not directly from Neanderthals. Um, So that's very interesting as well.
0: Didn't some scientists resist labeling Neanderthals in our own genus Homo? When did that change? Because I, I I read that I read that an esteemed biologist Rudolf Virchow said in 1872 that the anatomical peculiarities could be explained if a lost Russian Cossack with arthritis, rickets, broken leg, and bowed limbs from his cavalry career had secreted himself in a cave and died, and he then he yeah, suggested that the formidable bow uh, brows. Uh, resulted from excessive frowning due to chronic pain.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is some of the really early debate that went on in the 1870s um, when, you know, some people were really <clears throat> struggling with the idea that there had been a sort of human re- fossil relatives. Um, but I think um, the, the actual scientific naming of uh, Neanderthals took place in 1864, and they were classed as Um, you know, uh, Homo neanderthalensis at that point. So they were put in our own genus. There wasn't a question about that initially. Um, But um, I think some of the other debates more recently, you know, since we've had the genetic stuff, um, is are they actually a different species if we can interbreed with them? Um, And really the reality of that is that we are so close in evolutionary terms. We didn't separate from our common ancestor that long ago. Um, that we're kind of like very, very closely related species, which is why we can still interbreed. Or you can call us populations if if the sort of species word uh, is too confusing. But it's kind of like um, one of the sort of reference points is, um, you know, that uh, yaks and cows can interbreed, although they mm-hmm. are different uh, species.
0: Well, 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 we see it among dogs where a, uh, a little spaniel can interbreed with a big, uh, German Shepherd, but uh, and and they don't they don't look at, at all alike. Uh, I imagine one of the big changes in, in understanding all of this came with the development of new technologies. Early prehistorians didn't have carbon dating or similar methods to date fossils. They they were using a thing called Lyle's concept of stratigraph stratific- st- stratigraphy. Forgive me yeah, for mispronouncing. Right,
1: it's difficult to say but it's very simple to understand it just means that when you dig a site stuff at the bottom unless it's been disturbed is more likely to be older that's all it means Um, and so in the early days as you say before there was any way to directly find out how old a particular thing was all you had to go on was stratigraphy the order of stuff the order of layers within your site and then try and see if stuff in one layer in your site in one valley looks like stuff in another layer in another site somewhere else, and then you could do the relative dating and say, well, you know, if this is this high in my site here and it's at the bottom of this site over there, then, you know, you can kind of work out the relative ages. But when direct dating came in with, um, first of all, with radiocarbon in the 1950s, that really changed things dramatically because you could say, okay, This bone from this layer is 50,000 years old, although they couldn't get to 50,000 years in the 1950s. That's only a recent development. Um, But, um, you know, they could give a precise date and then sort of cross match much better. But also, I mean, since then, there have been tons of other um, direct dating methods, for lots of different materials. And so we have kind of a whole range of options that we can choose from, depending on how old the sites are as well and, and what material it is.
0: You write in detail about the Neanderthal diet. What did they eat? Uh, did, did they uh, eat the same sorts of things we do or do, weren't they also eating horse eyeballs, tortoises, jays, well, magpies? Were they, <laughs> they cannibals in some cases?
1: Well, I'll I'll leave the cannibal thing aside for a minute. But if, I think the better question would be what didn't Neanderthals eat really? Um we know, we've known for a long time that they were um, hunters, you know, that they, um, they were killing animals and we can see the animal remains in the sites. Um, but there was kind of an idea that, um, you know, this is all linked in with the whole extinction and trying to explain it, that maybe they were only eating big game and they weren't hunting small things like rabbits and birds and fish. And so maybe we did that and that's why we were able to survive because we were more flexible. Um, that has not really been supported um, over time, and like I mentioned at the very beginning with the fish, um, there is more and more evidence that um, Neanderthals could hunt small game, that they were happy foraging along coastlines and rock pools, that maybe they also were taking freshwater fish now and then, which of course you don't even need like a fishing line to that to do that. You can tickle fish out of the water. that's a very old skill. Um, and you just like basically pull them out by the gills. Um, So that's perfectly possible. Um, And also we now know that plants were definitely being eaten. We can see that from many kinds of evidence from tiny plant remains, insights, and also tiny sort of um, preserved residues in the dental calculus, you know, the tartar on their teeth. We can even look and see starch remains.
0: And, and and we some, they sometimes stole honey from beehives didn't they
1: well maybe um we know that they are doing something with wild bees because there was a recent really cool recent find um from italy um, of a an adhesive a little trace on a stone tool um of a, like a little black uh, sort of sticky stuff um, and it was analyzed and it turned out to be a mixture of conifer or pine resin mix with beeswax. Um, So that's amazing in itself. That's not, you know, it's not going to happen naturally. And we did know from other sites that Neanderthals knew how to cook birch tar out of birch bark, again, for an adhesive. So it's really cool to see a mixture of of beeswax and conifer resin, because that's like a step further in the complexity of of adhesives. Um, But yeah, surely if they're using beeswax, Mm. then they must have found out about honey and you know if if we look at hunter gatherers all over the place and chimpanzees honey is the sweetest natural sort of substance that we can get hold of and it's universally adored so i'm sure they enjoyed it
0: I, i'm i was surprised to learn that hippos and elephants inhabited what is now britain i don't know whether they were hunting them as well
1: and um, we Probably not hunting hippos in Britain, because during the period when hippos were here, um, it was warmer than today. Um, We believe that the sea level rose very quickly and Britain became cut off as an island, so there probably weren't Neanderthals here then. Mm -hmm. But um, but in Europe um, during that warm period, um, yeah, there's forest elephant, and it does look like um, they were involved with, if not actually hunting them, Certainly, they were using the carcasses, we can see the stone tools, but there's also a site where there's a spear there. That's kind of nearly like a smoking gun. Um, But it is interesting that although they are hunting big um, elephants and plenty of mammoth evidence as well that they're taking mammoths during cold periods, there isn't any evidence that they were actually butchering um, or hunting hippos. And Hippos are actually super dangerous. They kill a lot of people annually um, today. So maybe they were making a wise choice and avoiding them.
0: You're listening to Lettered Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, well, before we get back to my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes, I would like to make, just take a moment to ask you to step up and show your support for the show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from one to 2 p.m. And the way that uh, you can do that is by calling 516-620-3602 right now, or by going online to give to wbaiorg That's 516-620-3602. 02. Becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy, is one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And I am excited to announce that we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. If you call 516 620 3602 or go to give2wbai.org to right now and sign up to become a sustaining member, we will be happy to send you a free copy of the book we're discussing, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, by my guest, Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. It just takes a call to that number, 516-620-3602, or by going online right now to give to wbaiorg on your computer or smartphone or, or whatever. And, and signing up at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You can cancel at any time, and you don't even need to tell the person at the WBAI call center about the book or check any additional boxes online. My staff will take care of everything. Make sure that you receive it. But however you contribute, The important thing is that you do your part by stepping up and supporting this show and this legendary radio station, the only station in New York that's completely listener-sponsored without corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. So one last time, the number to call right now is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give2wbai.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Linda Thopate at Large. From all of us at the station to all of you, Thank you so much. And uh, we're returning now to my guest, Rebecca Rags-Sykes. Her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. And um, congratulations on the kind of response that this book has been receiving. It's been great.
1: Yeah, it's been absolutely amazing. It's, it's completely wonderful. I had, a, as you said, a really, Lovely review in the uh, New York Times. It was an editor's pick as well this week, so it's just absolutely wonderful. I, you know, I wrote it for for everybody. I wrote it for archaeologists and for people who know nothing about Neanderthals, but maybe you know, always fancied finding out something about them.
0: So let's get back to that whole business about Neanderthals making tools uh, to solve problems and to procure things that they needed. Uh, that would suggest automatically that they were functioning on a much higher level than the, the stereotype would suggest.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, their technology. When the fossils were first found um, in the 1850s, it took decades for any uh, skeletal remains, any bones to actually be found with artifacts. So for some time, they, there wasn't even any knowledge of, of whether they had culture or not. And um, but since then, um there's been a real sort of advance in in not just what we find, but as archaeologists, how we look at that material. um for most of the twentieth century, really sort of the first half, it was all about what did those um, stone tools look like, and they were classified by like their shape, whereas now we focus on, how Neanderthals were actually making them. And that really helps us get into the Neanderthals' minds themselves. And what we see is is systematic, it's sophisticated and innovative.
0: And you said that uh, we found uh, evidence of this in an Italian cave. Was uh, making composite tools a widespread practice or perhaps only used by that Neanderthal group?
1: Uh, we think it probably was quite widespread. Um, there's different ways we can see evidence for it. One is um, by sort of um, polishing on sort of stone tool where the handle, or what we call the haft, um, would have been attached. Um, and there's also um, these cases where we actually have residues. So that Italian site where we have the pine and the beeswax is that's the only case where there's this beeswax mix going on but there's another Italian site where they're using um, plant and animal fats um, but the birch tar I mentioned before um, that is known from multiple different sites uh, between Italy, Germany and um, the what was probably um, the what we call Doggerland which is actually just the, the sea the channel the North Sea area that's now flooded um, and that tool was dredged out by a ship and then dumped on the coast um, along the Netherlands area. Um, and that is also another piece with birch tar. And the time, that's only 50,000 years old, that last one. But the Italian one is right back probably 250,000 years. So this looks like it's actually perhaps quite widespread and quite an old technological tradition. Um, and yet birch tar is not a simple thing. It, you know, it doesn't just sort of leak out of birch bark. You have to cook it in fire you have to keep the temperature relatively stable. It can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It's a distillation, really. Um, and you can't let too much oxygen in, or it just burns. Um, so this is not a simple process. Um, and it's actually it's the first synthetic material. And the made it.
0: Have we learned also that they could move across as much as sixty miles? So did they set up? temporary settlements?
1: Yeah, I mean, Neanderthals um, absolutely are hunting and gathering peoples, and unless you live in basically a tropical forest, um, like a jungle that's extremely rich in vegetation, very high biodiversity all year round, you, you've got to move, um, you know, so if we're talking about um, certainly during the colder periods when you have um, open vegetation you know grasslands and um, you're going to have to be moving over large distances in order to get and um, to get to the game and um, in the woodland areas in the mediterranean maybe they weren't needing to move quite so far because the smaller game was around and there wasn't such sort of drastic seasonal differences um, but overall we should expect them to be moving and that is what we see from the archaeology um, we've we sort of Um, look at the uh, stone tools from a site is is the basic way to do this and at most Neanderthal sites um, somewhere around sort of I don't know um, 80 percent of the material is going to be sourced from within about five to ten kilometers and so all that rock is is available close by but almost always we also see um, stone tools that are coming from much further so over 50 kilometres, 100, sometimes 300 kilometres. Um wow. So these are objects that, yeah. So it's not that Neanderthals are living at that one site permanently and walking 300 kilometres to get rock and then bringing it back. That is a record of their movements across the landscape. So that site is just one node in a landscape through which they live at many different points in the year. And overall, probably they're not spending more than a couple of weeks at a time Maybe slightly longer, depending on the region and the climate, um, but they are very mobile.
0: The common image of Neanderthals was that they were grunting cavemen, but isn't there evidence that they could talk?
1: There is evidence um, from numerous kind of sources that some kind of vocal communication um, was important. I mean. Talking is, you know, it's a term, it makes us think of what we're doing at the moment. We're chatting on the radio. Um, I don't think that anybody would argue that we have evidence for language that is as sophisticated as what we all use today.
0: But did they have voice boxes?
1: Yeah, what we can tell is that um, the voice boxes are pretty much in the same place and probably formed roughly roughly. Um, similarly to ours, so that the range of sounds that they could produce was probably about the same. Maybe some differences with the vowels. Um, they had decent. Um, they probably had decent control of their lungs, so they, you know, they were able to control their breath properly. Um, and one of the most telling sort of anatomical factors is their ears, um, where although because the shape of their skull is different to ours, and um, if you look at the common ancestor that we share with them, our skulls went one way and Neanderthals went another. Um, And so our inner ears are differently shaped. But both Neanderthals and ours, um, if you use um, sort of modelling to look at Neanderthals' uh, ears, they seem to be both tuned into the same frequencies, which is human speech. So this does suggest that for Neanderthals, some some kind of talk, some kind of noises made with males was actually really important to them in their daily life. Um, but you know what they actually were speaking about is you know the big question um, and you can make guesses from the archaeology like with hunting cooperative hunting and um, you know presumably that does require some kind of speech um to to plan to discuss things when you're there to maybe shout out things or warnings We you know that primates can warn each other and um, you know of particular threats whether it's coming from the sky or the ground things like this so that's that's already quite complicated information, even in monkeys. Um, and um, other things like technology. For example, with, with these adhesives, with birch tar, is it possible to learn how to make birch tar without somebody teaching you? you know, mm. If you only copy it and nobody tells you how to do it, is it possible? Um, so there are these different arguments in terms of the archaeology and the bodies.
0: No, it, as I understand it, uh, intelligence um, across species depends on the uh, this, the uh, proportional size of the brain in relation to the rest of the body. Do, how does that apply to the Neanderthals? Did they have brains that were similar to to uh, Homo sapiens brains?
1: Yes. Um, on average, their brains are the same size as ours. Um, they Depending on the samples you use, they can actually look even slightly larger than ours, but that might be to do with um, sort of an overrepresentation of male Neanderthals in the archaeological record. And if you compare male Neanderthals who are slightly bigger with all of living people, males and females, they're going to look slightly bigger. So if you just compare the males with living males, then the effect is much sort of smaller and they look virtually identical.
0: In your chapter headed "Many Ways to Die, You write about Neanderthal love and grief through describing the burials of their dead that they planned and carried out. Uh, So we know that they buried their dead?
1: Well, that has been one of the biggest debates for so long, just like language. Um, And some of the early claims for burials were based on the fact that um, there was a nearly entire skeleton, basically. Um, But today archaeologists are much more conservative about the kind of things that we will sort of claim. And really to to call something a burial, you need to also find evidence of like a pit or, you know, some kind of um, sort of hollow that that the body's been put in. Um, So when you rule out early cases where we can't tell what the excavators actually found, um, there's not many samples where we can say, oh, yeah, definitely it looks like there was a pit. Um, However, there was a new find um, from a really amazing site in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan called Shanidar Big Cave, um, where there were multiple Neanderthal remains known from the 1960s. um, But a new excavation um, has identified uh, another body um, which is really beautifully preserved, and it does appear as if that was actually um, in a natural channel in the floor of the cave that had then been further kind of scooped out by Neanderthals, so sort of enlarged. Um, and although that's only recently been found, you know, they're going to be throwing all of 21st century archaeological science at that to look at, you know, the tiny sediments and really prove that.
0: Wouldn't the fact that we have found so few Neanderthal remains, despite the fact that there were so many of them, suggest that that they had buried many? They probably just buried them in what now what in the woods or whatever. Uh, and uh, over yeah, time, th- 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 that would have disintegrated.
1: Yeah, it's definitely possible. Um, we don't really know what happened, um, you know, if an individual died out in the open air. Um, we can see uh, some random body parts here and there, like there's an arm from some river gravels in France, and presumably that was somebody unlucky that sort of encountered animal or fell in a river. Um, but there's no open-air, like, entire skeletons. This is all coming from caves. Um, and we find, you know, tiny, tiny baby uh, skeletons even, mm. which is really interesting. You know, how do they get there and be preserved? But in general, um, we we have to assume that um, we, we're not seeing the entire sort of span of what they're up to. But m- most recently, archaeologists have kind of turned their attention to the scraps and bits of bone that we find um, as well and more than we used to believe of those were actually being processed and so like the bodies were taken apart and butchered and sometimes it looks exactly like what they're doing with animals but other times it it looks a little bit different like the percentage of cut marks is a bit higher on the Neanderthals bones than on the animals and so it looks as if there's a bit more focus um so I think something else is going on there in, in terms of the way that their bodies are dealt with. Sometimes they put whole bodies and and they're preserving them somehow in a case site, like, but elsewhere they do something different.
0: I'm speaking with Rebecca Rag Sykes, W-R-A-G-G-S-Y-K-E-S. Her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So much of this is conjecture, I imagine. You write, Neanderthals probably had pair-bonded sexual relations, at least mostly, and that means that unlike many other primates, parenting was more likely a shared task, and adult partnerships were long-term affairs. Now, did you base that on anything other than conjecture?
1: Well, I mean, some of it is, I mean, with archaeology, you know, you have what's preserved, and then you use that together with what we understand about hunter-gatherers, what we understand about ourselves as a member of the primate family, and we make inferences that are basically informed. Um, so that's what I've tried to do. But for the for the mating, you know, for like how their social groups are formed, And that's basically um, based on a particular piece of information, which is that if the body sizes between the sexes are significantly different, like they are in gorillas, then it's more likely that you have um, the larger one, which is the male um, sort of being in a group with a number of females. Whereas if you look at many different kinds of animals, if the body size, um, but particularly the primates, if the body size is very similar, then they're more likely to be in pairs. So that is um, a conjecture, but it's pretty likely to be true.
0: Now, art is one of the uh, the things mentioned in your subtitle. What evidence is there that Neanderthals may have created art?
1: Um, that is something that is probably one of the most controversial things about them, I think even more than language, because it, it is actually connected to language, obviously. Um, and overall, personally, I don't really like using the word art and I try not to do it in the book because I think it sets up expectations in, in people's minds about sort of, you know, old masters' paintings and things like this in a gallery. Or even
0: cave paintings. Um, they didn't do cave paintings.
1: Well, they may have used pigments on cave walls which is a kind of cave painting. Um, The question is, what were they doing with materials? And if we look at sort of all of their technologies um, and the way that they butchered animals, everything, we can see that there is a massive interest in the quality of materials, different qualities. Um, And then we also see evidence for other things that they're doing with materials that don't have like a functional explanation, Um, And this involves, um, this includes mineral pigments. So we can see a lot of sites that they're collecting different colored mineral pigments. um, And in some places they are mixing them together um, and then putting them on things like shells, where, and particularly in in an Italian site, there's a fossil shell that was itself collected from about hundred kilometers away. It's got nothing to do with food, you know, it's a fossil. Um, And it has red pigment on the outside. So that's an unusual object with colour only on the outside. And that pigment is not, you know, it's nothing found naturally in the cave. That has come from about 40 kilometres. And we see this over and over again. The the examples are not frequent, but they are there across the range of where Neanderthals live and through time. Um, So we can see not only colour, but also they're making marks on surfaces. Um, There's a few bones where you can see very regular markings that have just got nothing to do with butchery. It's something else. Um, And even on uh, cave walls, there's a site, uh, there's a Gibraltar cave where there are these big incisions in the floor of the cave, um, which, uh, you know, don't seem to have any functional explanation. Um, And then there are claims.
0: I'm sorry, we're pretty much out of time. And I have to address the final, the major question. Why, if they were so competent... Why, if they were so competent, cooperative, and cultural, did the Neanderthals die out at a population level uh, at about 40,000 years ago? You hypothesize it may have been due to a combination of factors, a highly unstable climate, and competition from Homo sapiens that finally proved too much for them to withstand. And I'm sorry, I got to give you just one minute to answer. <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah, I think all, of, all archaeologists would say it's complicated. Um, it's probably something to do with climate, maybe, but also we see traces from genetics that although there was hardly any Neanderthals and hardly any early Homo sapiens, the early Homo sapiens people seem to be living in more socially interconnected groups. So something is going on about how they are connected to each other at a fundamental level that's different. Um, and that may be linked to cognition, to greater evidence for um, pieces of objects that might be some kind of personal ornament, jewellery. It all ties together, but it is all, it's all—it's clearly focusing on social aspects.
0: And you write in an epilogue that we should be concerned about uh, climate change as a problem that we're about to face because it may be similar to what the uh, Neanderthals faced uh i i have to leave it there unfortunately there's so much more i'd want to talk to you about rebecca rag sykes her book kindred neanderthal life love death and heart published by bloomsbury sigma it's been a great pleasure Well,
1: oh, thank you and i hope everyone's enjoyed listening
0: and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, or you can visit our website, LenditLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LenditLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I want to take just one last moment to ask you to support this station. If, if you care about Leonard Globe At Large and all the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it alive during these very challenging times. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to show your support. Uh, uh, and as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Pit at Large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death, and Art by my guest, Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Loped at Large. And thanks. Um, we're not like England. England, everybody has to pay uh, a fee, whether they listen to the BBC or not. We rely totally on the support of our listeners, and I think it's, it's a good way to guarantee that we will remain free speech radio. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas E. Ricks will discuss his latest book, First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans, and How That Shaped Our Country. We'll see you then.